Forced sexual abuse is a global problem and something must be done about it. For Agape International Missions, we're committed to four things. We prevent, we rescue, we restore, and we reintegrate. What we're about as an organization is real life. The mess, the beauty, the pain, the joy, all of it, and immersing ourselves in that. We talk about that we're working with those who are affected by trafficking. Well, the reality is we all are, because what affects one affects us all. And allowing ourselves to be thin-skinned enough to be affected is absolutely crucial. I want to feel that suffering inside, because out of that place, hopefully is birthed some sort of action that is meaningful and changes the situation that is causing pain and causing suffering. That's family, that's what Love 146 is about, and I think that's even what the movement is about, is being affected by the suffering of others that you engage and do something to change that suffering. What I see is a world where children are free to be children and are not used as commodities or for somebody else's sick pleasure. That's what I see. I see the end of child trafficking and exploitation. And sometimes people will be, that's a bit naive. No, I don't think it is. I think it's audacious. And it's people of audacity to change the world. The beauty is, it's not about me. It's a people that are rising up that are saying, I believe in this kind of world for children. That's movement We're saying, man, what is it that you love to do? What is it that you can do um, to bring to the family that makes the change, that makes the difference? What gifts are in you? What do you have access to to make change and love doing it? Because at the end of the day, it's not about causes and issues. It's about people. Thank you for, for being part of this family. That is an amazing video. It, it's a, it, it, the video that you just watched tells an amazing story. It tells a story of hope. It tells a story of, of justice. It tells a story of, of a people who are, are unwilling to stare into the face of darkness and say, I'm good, I don't need to do anything about this, but instead says, what, what can we do? How can we step up? It's also a video, it's also a story about partnerships. Uh, you saw at the beginning of the video, you saw uh, AIM, Agape International Missions. And, and there you heard from the butlers, who have been a longtime partner of Mosaic. We've stepped into their lives, and they've been a part of our mission globally for many years. And we love that partnership. More recently, we've stepped into a partnership with Love 146. And we've begun to work with them as, as they also are seeking to end human trafficking and exploitation. Two agencies working at the same issue, chipping away at it from different angles. Because at the end of the day, this issue is so big that it's going to take more than just one organization to tackle it. It's going to take hundreds and thousands of organizations working around the world in all sorts of different spheres of influence. And so we've partnered with AIM and Love 146. Lo uh, my first experience with Love 146 happened a number of years ago. Uh, I was uh, taking part in a charity 5K race where uh, we were raising money for the issue of human trafficking, and specifically those funds were going to uh, Love 146 as an organization. 
And it was then that, that my heart really began to be stirred for this issue. And I began to catch a vision for how we could bring this issue into the church and call the people of God to rise up against this issue as we have in the past. And so as I began to dream about that and think about that, uh, the, the issue just began to seep deeply into my soul. And ever since then, it's been a part of my life and quite honestly, a, a part of my family's budget even. It's just a, been a major part of who we are. And it was during that Charity 5K that I also uh, met uh, Love 146's co-founder and our guest speaker today, Rob Morris. Rob is, is one of those guys, uh, kind of like our lead pastor, Renault, who is sort of a, a, a big vision thinker. One of those guys who just sort of, uh, he calls people into grand things and calls people and inspires people and mobilizes people to say, you know what, I think we can actually change the world. Let's give that a try. Rob Morris is one of those guys. Rob, if you can come on up to the stage for us. Uh, Rob is a, a dear friend. Amen, yeah. Rob is a, a dear friend. I'm privileged to uh, have, have been able to get to know this guy over the years. It's such a, a privilege and an honor to welcome him to our stage today. Uh, and Rob is also the, really the guy who made me a modern-day abolitionist. So it's just great to have him with us today. Rob, thanks so much. Interesting. He, Rob's a big guy like your senior pastor. I think not. Um, <laughs> I have... Uh, I have, uh, I have six kids, and um, one, of, one of my kids is uh, just turned 15, and he's uh, six foot three. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's always an, an intimidating thing when I kiss him goodnight, and he sort of just pats me on the head. <laughs> so, anyway. So, good morning, Mosaic. Thank you um, for, uh, for having us. Um, it's really good to be here, and I mean that on several different levels. Yesterday when I left New England, it was 8 degrees. Um, yeah, all week it's been between 17 and 25 below with wind chill. So when I say it's great to be here, I mean that with every fiber of my being. Um, but more than that, it's always good to be with people who what we call get it and um, are, are saying more than just with words, but saying, man, we're in, and we want to do something about a really dark issue. And that is super encouraging to us. So thank you for that. Thank you for your partnership. You know, there's a civil rights leader from way back named W.E.B. Dubois who made this statement. He said, there is but one coward on earth, and that is the coward who dare not know. And I think instinctively in a lot of us, when we hear really dark, scary issues, horrific, heartbreaking issues, there's a part instinctively in us that just wants to turn away, that just wants to look away. I can't even bear, I've got enough pain of my own, I can't even bear to deal with that. I see it happen in conversations. I'm sort of like the dinner guest from hell. Um, you know, when I go out with people who I've not met before, or whatever, and they're like, so tell me what you do. I'm like, you don't want to know. What I do, I remember, in fact, just uh, some time ago, I went out with some friends, and this guy said, hey, you know, I, I want to introduce you to this couple who are really anxious to meet you. It's their first anniversary. They're going out to dinner. They want to have you come. I'm like, you don't want me coming to your first anniversary dinner. They're like, no, no, we really want. So we went, and sure enough, within like a half hour, all sobbing at the table, I'm like, well, happy anniversary, man. <laughs> so 
But you know what I'm talking about. Instinctively, we just don't want to hear it. It's too painful. It's too crazy. And so it takes courage to say, you know what? No, I'm not going to turn away. I want to know. So thank you for being a people of courage. And then taking it even beyond that, I love the, Jew, the Jewish historian Yehuda Bauer in speaking of the Holocaust. He says, you know what? I suggest that we add three new commandments to the existing ten. And he said, and those three new commandments look like this. Thou shalt not be a perpetrator. Thou shalt not be a victim. And then he said, the most important of all is thou shalt never, ever be a bystander. And I love that. And, and so it's encouraging to come into a place where not only do, is there a group of people who say, I want to know, but going beyond that saying, we want to engage and we want to do something about it, we refuse to be bystanders. So thank you for being those kinds of people. You know, years ago I was asked to speak at a conference and they gave me the passage of scripture that they wanted me to speak on and it was the passage where Jesus is sending his disciples into the harvest field. And I dug into this passage and stuff, and right away, I was unable, I'm from New York, born and raised in New York, I couldn't draw upon any great farming anecdotes, or I know nothing about farming, so I couldn't really address what is a harvest, what does it look like, or anything like that. So I'm digging deeper here, and I get to this part where he sends them, he says, I'm sending you into the harvest, and as you go, announce not only with your words, but with your actions, with the way you live your life, that the kingdom of God has come into the harvest. And I was just really intrigued by what does that, what does that mean? And I started thinking about the harvest field. And then I'm going to be honest with you. I've always thought of the harvest. When I've heard this passage spoken about or when I've read the passage, I've always pictured the harvest field as sort of this beautiful field as far as you could see, sort of like out in the Midwest where as far as you could see, sort of the ripened waves of grain. You know, the wind kind of comes and, and it gently sort of flows and, and Jesus is sending us out into that beautiful harvest field. He says, go, you know. But here is the, here's the harsh reality is the harvest field is not pretty at all. When I actually start to think about what the harvest field looks like, you're reminded daily by watching the evening news about what the harvest field actually looks like. Right? The idea that today, while we're here today, 40,000 people are going to die because of extreme poverty. That's not a pretty harvest field. When I think that today, on the continent of Africa alone, over 40 million children have been orphaned because of a disease called AIDS. That's not a pretty harvest field. The idea that there are millions of people on the planet called refugees right now that have no place called home, that's not a pretty harvest field. You know, when I think about that, they, the estimation of 20 million people enslaved today that are still in slavery today, that's not a pretty harvest field. When I think about racism and terrorism and on and on and on we go, the harvest field is terrifying. It's terrifying. It's scary. It's messed up, man. And this is the harvest that he's calling us into and says, go into that mess. So I automatically then am like, wow, how do I do that? What does that look like? And so I'm, I'm reminded of something that I discovered when I first became a follower of Jesus. I was about 19 years old. Um, and uh, at that time, I, I came out of a lot of stuff and everything, and, and I connected to a church, and this youth pastor says, Rob, maybe you should go to Bible college and go into ministry. I'm like, all right. So I went off to Bible college, and I did what you're supposed to do in Bible college. I started studying the Bible. And the first couple of weeks that I was there, I opened up my Bible, and I started to read, and I found this passage where Jesus is saying, hey, to his disciples, I'm going to teach you guys a good prayer to pray. 
And me and my childlike faith thought, man, if Jesus is saying this is a good prayer to pray, this is a prayer I got to learn and learn how to pray and stuff. And, and I started to read these words that are so familiar to all of us where he says, our Father who art in heaven. And he goes on, he gets to this part where it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I was obliterated by the possibilities. All of a sudden, I have this dream of a kingdom that man, as it is in heaven, the kingdom as it is in heaven, the will of God as it's done in heaven can come to earth because I knew enough in my childlike faith then that man, what it looks like there is a lot different than what it looks like in the mess called the harvest field here. There aren't mothers saying goodbye to their babies because there's no more food or clean water to give them there. There aren't children being sold like commodities. There, I knew it looked different there than it does here, and here is this prayer saying, your kingdom as it looks like there, your will as it looks like there, can come here. And I got so excited, I called my roommates together. I'm like, you guys, check out this prayer that I just found. And I started to read this prayer, and my roommates were just sort of like, yeah, Rob, we know that prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. I'm like, okay, I didn't know it had a name, but isn't this an awesome prayer to pray that? Man, we could pray that and I get, I'm getting all excited and they're just kind of looking at me and then finally they were like, whoa, 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 wait, before you get too excited, it's not actually the kingdom of God. They're not, and they just began to theologize my little dream of a kingdom to death and popped my dream of a kingdom bubble to pieces. And I believed them because I thought they must know more than I do. They must be more theologically correct than I am. I know nothing. I'm just a child in the faith here and stuff, and so I just believe them. But let me tell you something. In the last few years of my life, I have so been recovering that prayer again that it has become like an ache inside of my bones, that when I walk through red light districts where children are being sold for horrific reasons, I walk through those places of darkness saying, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done in this dark place, even as it's done in heaven. That it's a cry in my heart now. It's way beyond a prayer. And then when I start thinking about it, what, a, what kind of theology would actually suggest that Jesus would say, pray this, even though it's never really going to happen? Really? Is that the character of Jesus? I don't think so. And not only that, Jesus doesn't just leave it at pray this. Throughout the, new, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus continually telling the disciples, now you bring it. You're actually the answer to that prayer that God is going to use. You will be bringers of the kingdom. He doesn't tell a story of the good Samaritan and ends it with, wow, did you like that? Did you get goosebumps? No, he ends the story saying, now you go and do the same thing. In other words, you bring the kingdom the way I just described it through this story. You know, he doesn't preach a great sermon like the Sermon on the Mount, talking about loving your enemies and all that and say, man, did you like that? Was that inspiring? No, he says, now go and live like this. Be bringers of this kind of kingdom living. So this is really inspiring and powerful to me of like, wow, entering the harvest field with this mandate of bringing a kingdom that looks more like there than what the mess looks like here. How do you do that? These are a few things that I've learned along the way. This is not an exhaustive approach by any means. It's a few nuggets I've picked up on my journey that have been helpful to me, hopefully might be helpful to you. The first thing I think it takes to bring the kingdom that looks more like justice um, is perspective. And what I mean by that is something that we practice at Love 146 is what we call the Mother Teresa principle, where she said, if I didn't pick up the one, I never would have picked up the 40,000 off the streets of Calcutta. That it begins with the one. That we're not talking about issues and causes here. We're talking about human beings. We're talking about image bearers of the most high God is who we're talking about here. Sometimes we get lost in causes and issues. We put categories and names um, over things and everything. We forget that we're talking about human beings. Individual human beings loved and adored by God. And that changes perspective. 
For me, I got perspective over 12 years ago when I first was exposed to this issue called human trafficking, which 12 years ago, not a lot of people were talking about. It's very quickly becoming the human rights issue of our time. I mean, President Obama, just a year ago, gave the longest speech any president has given on the issue of slavery since Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation. This is becoming a serious thing that people are becoming more and more aware of that has to end and has to stop. And so when I first got exposed to it almost 12 years ago, I didn't know much about it. I started learning about it, figuring out, and myself and a couple of friends were just like, how can we be helpful? We connected with another organization, a great organization, um, uh, made up of criminal investigators and people familiar with legal proceedings and things like that, and, and are doing great work in, in areas of gross injustice. And, and in um, uh, talking with, with some of the leaders there, they invited us to say, man, if you want to see, if you really want to know how you can be helpful, you really need to educate yourselves. You need, a, you need to see this firsthand. And so they invited us to one of their operating centers in a place in Southeast Asia. And I remember as we went, and, and the night that we, we were going to go in, they were explaining what they do. And these particular investigators that we were wor uh, uh, working with that night, they basically go into brothels undercover, posing as customers. They have undercover surveillance equipment on. They gather evidence in these places. Sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes months, to get enough evidence that they can present to local authorities to warrant some sort of action on behalf of law enforcement. And oftentimes, there's a separate investigation that has to take place amongst local law enforcement to weed out those that are corrupt, those that are getting paid by brothel managers or traffickers or whatever. It's, an, it's a complex process, to say the least, and a long, arduous uh, process. And, and I remember um, as we were connecting with them, they were basically gave us this brief training before we were going to go into this particular brothel on how to pose as a customer. And I have to tell you that it was the most disturbing experience of my life to have to pose or pretend to be the very thing that everything in me is completely and utterly repulsed by. And I remember just as we were about to go in, the last thing the investigator said to us, he says, listen, if you don't think you can do this, if you don't think you can hold it together emotionally going in there, please don't go in. You can't, we cannot risk you destroying an investigation that has been taking weeks or months or however long it was that has been an ongoing thing. And we were like, no worries, until we walked into this brothel. And I will never forget this night as long as I live as I stood in this room looking through these glass windows at young girls with matching red dresses on, having even the dignity of a name stripped from them. They just had numbers pinned to their dresses. On this side of the glass, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with what could only be described as predators who are purchasing these kids for absolutely horrific and terrifying reasons. And I remember hearing those words again in my head of the investigator saying, if you don't think you can hold it together, because everything in me as a man... As a father, as a human being, was not holding it together. I was trying to figure out, man, I want to smash through this glass and get as many of those kids out of here right now in this moment. I'm looking around and thinking, how many of these guys in this room could we take out? And all of these thoughts were raging through me, and we had to refrain. We had to restrain ourselves so that this investigation could go to a place of completion, shutting this place completely down and getting these kids into places where they can begin their long road of recovery. And I remember being so shaken by the looks in the eyes of these kids. You know, I, having six kids of my own, one of the few things that I've learned about children is that if there should be anybody on the planet that has a light on in their eyes, it should be a child. If there should be anybody that still has that sparkle, that still has life in their eyes, it should be a kid. But when I looked through those windows, it was gone. It was stripped from these kids. They were like little robots. They were sitting, staring blankly at these little television sets um, with children's cartoons playing on them, waiting to be purchased and abused. And they were just like little robots with these blank stares, except for one girl. 
And my guess was that she was probably new to the brothel because that light had not been taken from her yet. She was the only one that was not looking at the children's cartoons. She was staring at us through the glass and there was still this fight left in her eyes. I will never forget that face. I'll never forget her eyes still, even to this day, oftentimes the last face that I see at night when I close my eyes is still her face. I will never forget her number. Her number was 146. And so even naming our organization is to help us on a daily basis to remember that it is about the one. It gives us that perspective that we need, that it is about individual um, people. And we talk about love. We talk about love defending and protecting the innocent and the vulnerable, about restoring and empowering uh, the, the broken. When I think about the one, I think about um, when I think perspective, I think about a girl that I had met in a safe home who had just recently been rescued, but she was so broken, she would spend her days at the edge of the safe home property, sitting in a pile of dirt, taking handfuls of dirt and pouring the dirt over her head, wanting to disappear into the ground. I cannot even fathom that kind of brokenness, especially in a child. That's perspective. It's not about issues or causes. We're talking about human beings here. When I think about the one, I think about a therapy session that our director of aftercare did at our, at our home for girls in the Philippines. And one of the first signs of recovery taking place is when a child can dream of their future again. When kids first come into our care and you say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oftentimes what you will see is a blank stare of this sort of like complete disconnect. What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. If I survive today, that's a really good day. There's no sense of tomorrow or a future. So when a child is able to say, I want to be a teacher when I grow up, or I want to do this, or I want to do that, we celebrate that like crazy because it's the first signs of, man, recovery is starting to happen. Redemption is starting to take place. Something is stirring here. Something is happening here. And so during this therapy session, she had the girls one at a time walk down this pathway through our safe home property, and she said, I want you to picture your future. What do you see? One girl walked down the pathway. She says, I picture myself turning 18 one day never thinking that she would ever reach the age of 18. She says, man, one day I'm going to turn 18, and maybe people will even celebrate that fact. Maybe people will even throw me a party for the first time. I'm going to reach the age of 18 one day. That's my dream. Another girl walks down the path where she says, I dream of going to school one day. Maybe I'll go to school, maybe even go to high school and walk down an aisle at my high school graduation. That's my dream. And then a third girl who just broke my heart. She walks down the pathway. She stops midway. She closes her eyes, looks down, and pretends to hold a bouquet of flowers in her hand. She says, I picture a wedding day that maybe someday somebody's going to love me. Somebody's going to value me the way I should be loved and valued. And later on, it was heartbreaking as she shared with our director of aftercare her doubts of that ever happening, saying, do you think anybody is ever going to want to desire me, ever, ever love me or value me if they find out what I've been through? Heartbreaking stuff. This is the harvest field. This is the perspective that we need. Just last month, I was on a plane heading to an event that I was speaking at, and I got an email that came while I was on the plane from our director of aftercare in the Philippines who had said that we just brought in the youngest girl we have ever brought into our care who had just turned two. You know, it's so interesting that every time I share that, that's the, there's a gasp. You know what? That should be, that should be a gasp. That should result in a gasp that it's that crazy. This is the harvest field that we're talking about. It's perspective, remembering that it's about individual people. What else is it going to take? You know, some people, um, 
have looked at our vision statement. We have a very bold vision statement, admittedly. It's the end of child trafficking and exploitation, nothing less. And people sort of pat us on the back and say, that's great and inspiring, but don't you think it's a bit naive or idealistic to think that that's ever really going to happen when you see the numbers and the stats and all of that? I hate that. I hate that defeatist mentality. I don't think it's idealistic. I don't think it's naive. I think it's audacious, like you just heard on that video. And it's only people of audacity that ever change anything. People said the same thing to a William Wilberforce, who for decades, Great Britain fought against the transatlantic slave trade. And it was a more difficult job then because slavery was legal then. In fact, the, the economy of the entire British Empire was based on the backs of slaves. And so for Wilberforce to get up in front of Parliament and when he said, I think this is an offense to God and humanity and needs to end, he was laughed at, he was mocked, he was called idealistic and naive. Did Wilberforce say, you're right, what was I thinking? How naive can I possibly be? No, he was continually fighting and fighting because he was a person of audacity and and saw the end of the transatlantic slave trade. That's what audacity ends up doing. A Martin Luther King Jr. who stands up on the Washington Mall and he makes this statement, he rolls out this dream, I have a dream, and he spills this dream out. Was that naive or idealistic? No, it was audacious. When Jesus said, man, tear this temple down, and in three days it's going to rise again, was that idealistic or naive? It was audacious. People of audacity change everything. It's going to take perspective. It's going to take audacity in bringing the kingdom into the mess called the harvest field. What else is it going to take? It's going to take thought. Sometimes we're not so good at this part, man. I remember when I was in Cambodia years ago when we first started the organization, this leader of a large human rights agency there, she goes, you know what your problem is as Americans? And I sort of just braced myself. If you travel at all, you, you get used to this, right? So, so I'm thinking, I can think of some things, but I know you're going to tell me, so go for it, man. And she looks at me, she goes, you don't think, you react. I said, wow, that's really interesting. And she started to unpack that. She goes, I think sometimes you, people see some human rights abuse in the world or something happening and everything, and instead of taking the time to create solutions that are going to be effective and sustainable, you just react. And because you haven't put thought into your reaction, sometimes your reaction actually causes more harm than good later on down the road. And I remember sort of taking that on as a mandate, as an organization, saying, you know what, we want to make sure that we're thoughtful. And so all of our prevention programs, our survivor care programs, we've put tremendous amount of thought and strategy into all of those things. It's what makes those things effective. It's why people's lives are changing. It's why we're able to stop some of this stuff from happening. But I have to tell you, I honestly struggle with the daily tension of the emergency factor that children are being trafficked right now as I speak, right now as I'm coming up with solutions that are effective. So the time that it takes to come up with the solutions and the emergency factor is a constant tension. But that's what doing justice is all about. Justice is the long-haul commitment, learning to live in those places of tension instead of trying to ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist. It takes thought um, as far as bringing the, the kingdom into the harvest. What else does it take? It takes personal engagement. You know, I remember uh, years ago, we had, uh, our, our, we, our family had this broken down minivan that finally bit the dust. And um, I, I used to fear when I would go travel, and I travel a lot and everything, that man, in, the, in this sub-zero degree temperature one day, my wife and my kids are going to break down someplace, and they're going to be stranded, and it's going to be horrible. So for the first time ever, our family decided to make the investment. We ended up leasing, for the first time, a brand new vehicle. And I did all the research to find the ultimate minivan uh, to, to, to rent, and, and I landed on the Honda Odyssey 
It's like, this is, this is it, man. It's the Honda Odyssey. And we, and we leased a Honda Odyssey. And you know what's so crazy? Is once I did that, everybody started getting Honda Odysseys, man, because we saw them everywhere all of a sudden. You know, we'd be driving down the road. My kids are like, Dad, there's a Honda Odyssey. Look, another Honda Odyssey. We pull into a mall parking lot. We're like, Dad, a Honda Odyssey, a Honda Odyssey. Man, Rob Morris goes and buys a Honda Odyssey, and everybody's got to go get a Honda Odyssey. Nobody has an original idea anymore. Obviously, that's not a reality, right? But here's the reality. The Honda Odyssey now affects my life. So now I see it everywhere. God help us to be putting ourselves in the places where we are affected by the pain of our neighbor. You know, this is, this is what God requires of us. Not to insulate and isolate ourselves, but put ourselves in a place where we're actually affected by the pain of our neighbor. It's absolutely and utterly um, important. You know, it's like we, we, don't, we don't care about cancer until somebody in our family or somebody close to us gets cancer. Then we're running marathons to raise money for the American Cancer Society because now cancer affects my life. We need to be affected by the injustice that happens all around us. And sometimes that means purposely putting ourselves into the mess of it so that we're affected. You know, I remember when I was leaving high, the high school parking lot. This was a long, long time ago when I was in high school. And I remember as we were leaving this, the high school parking lot on the bus, on the school bus, somebody on the bus goes, fight, fight. We all look out the window and there was a crazy fight happening in the parking lot. There was like 15 people on one kid and they were pounding the life out of this kid. I have no idea what this kid did, but he upset a lot of people, right? And we all rushed to the, the side of the bus to get away window seat to watch the craziness happening in the parking lot, almost tipping the bus over, fighting over a window to watch what was happening. And it was, it was nasty. I mean, they were stomping on this kid's head, kicking him in the face and kicking him in his stomach. He was curled up in a fetal position. They were jumping on him and jumping. And we're all looking out the window just like, oh, oh man, did you see? Oh, just freaked out. There was a kid on the bus who was on the baseball team. And I remember that little fact because he ran to the back of the bus and he pulls his baseball bat out of his duffel bag and he goes running down the center aisle of the bus yelling at the bus driver, Stop the bus! Stop the bus! And the bus driver looks in the rearview mirror, sees this kid with a baseball bat, slams on the brakes of the bus. I'll never forget the scene as she flew open the door. This guy barreled off of this bus, literally risking his own life. He throws himself into this mob of people. Tears are streaming down his face. He's sobbing, crying, swinging this bat. Please leave him alone. Leave him alone. He's just one kid. He's only one kid, and he's just crying. And I remember this sick feeling coming over me in that moment as I discovered what I was. That man, I'm just an observer. That's all I am. I'm sitting on the safety of my bus, looking at the windows on gross injustice, never thinking about engaging. And if I did think about it, what stopped me from engaging? Who knows what it was? I can't remember back that far, but was it fear that, man, something could happen to me if I do that? Or was it the classic thing that we all default to so often, man? Well, what can one person do? There's 15 of them. There's only one of me. What can I possibly do to change this situation? Only one kid on that bus had the courage to engage. And I remember there was some seed that was planted in me at that time that didn't bring fruit until years and years later, but it was this seed of determination of, man, I never want to feel like this again. I never want to be this guy again on the safety of this bus. And you guys, here's the reality, is God never meant the church to be a bus, ever. We're supposed to live out in the mess of the harvest field. Sometimes we create this thing, this bus, and we live on here, and every once in a while we go out there amongst them. Into the, and we do these things called outreaches or whatever. God wants us to live on outreach. He wants us to live in the mess um, of the harvest field. It takes that personal engagement, recognizing that what affects one affects all of us. What else is it going to take? It's going to take repentance. 
And what I mean by that is I remember discovering this place in the Word of God where something can astonish God. I used to think nothing could shock God. Nothing could astonish the Most High, right? He's the creator of the universe. Nothing could shock him. There's one place in all of the Bible that I found that something actually astonishes God. And what's crazy is it's not what I had expected it to be. I would think the idea of children being sold like commodities would astonish God. I would think that, that, that injustice, different radical injustice would, would astonish God. But through the book of Isaiah, you see God railing on injustice. You see God pouring his heart out about the fatherless, the widow, the, the, the poor, the oppressed, and on and on. You see God pouring his heart. He says, this stuff breaks my heart. And he says, but then it goes on and he says in Isaiah 59, he goes, so I see all of this injustice. I see the oppression and I look for somebody to intervene. I look for somebody to do something about it. And I was astonished, shocked, stunned that I found no one. The thing that can astonish the creator of the universe is not injustice. It's when he looks for us to do something about it and we're busy doing something else. When he looks for somebody to stand between the strong and the weak and doesn't find us there. I've had to come to a place of repentance in my own life, of repenting from a self-obsessed brand of Christianity that somehow I was immersed in. That it was all about me, my salvation, my healing, my this, my that, my that, my that. Realizing that, man, this still all has to do with me. And then I come, came across, like, what is repentance? And honestly, even my repentance was self-obsessed. My repentance all had to do with my personal morality issues. Repentance is way bigger than that. In fact, John the Baptist was asked straight up, what is repentance? And you know how John answered the question? This is what repentance looks like. If you have two coats and another person doesn't have any, you give one of your coats to the person that doesn't have one. That's repentance. What? Re your repentance, if it's real repentance, and you can look through the New Testament at almost every um, action of repentance, somehow people's repentance almost immediately, if not soon after, directly benefited the poor and the oppressed. So interesting to me. How did I miss that? Because I was just self-obsessed in my brand of Christianity. You know, I remember somebody one time after a church service said, Rob, be careful of that whole thing, two coats, you give one. That sounds more like communism to me. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is John the Baptist talking here. This is the Bible. I didn't pull this out of some communist manifesto. This is what God requires of us in showing up, and that's what the kingdom uh, looks like, and it's, and, it's, and it's what he desires of us. And so, um, yeah, repentance. What else is it going to take? It's going to take tenacity. They're not giving up. My mom used to call it stick-to-itiveness. I thought she invented that word. I thought she was a genius. And then I found it in the dictionary. The word stick-to-itiveness is actually in the dictionary. But that's what she called it, the not giving up thing. You know, I love, there's the, um, one of my heroes, a guy named Gary Haugen, who is the president of a phenomenal organization called the International Justice Mission, who we've partnered with for years. It's part of why I'm in this uh, mess to begin with. Um, he says it really, really well. He says, the victims of injustice and oppression in our world do not need our spasm of passion. What they need instead is our long obedience in the same direction and our legs and lungs of endurance, the not giving up thing. Einstein, who was a pretty smart guy, actually said, it's not that I'm so smart, it's just that I don't give up. I stick with problems longer. I love that. And then if you like jazz like I do, Billie Holiday said it also really well when she says, the difficult I'll do right now, the impossible may just take a little while. I love that. It's not that it's impossible. It's just that impossible takes longer than the difficult. The tenacity of not giving up. Perseverance. The work for justice is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so the stick to it in this thing is absolutely vital in bringing the kingdom into the mess. And then the last thing that it requires is a collective shout. Your voice 
added to my voice, added to the voices of many, becomes this collective shout, which becomes a movement, which turns out to be something really, really powerful and really beautiful. What I'm seeing stirring in the body of Christ, especially in this country right now, is this awakening that's starting to happen of like, wow, these are things that we are taking seriously. When Micah the prophet said, this is actually not um, a suggestion, but a requirement that you do justice and that you love mercy and you walk in humility, there's this recapturing or something um, of, of some foundations of, of, of the Christian life that's, that's happening that's just incredible and powerful and hopeful. That the, the, I think the needle is beginning to, to move here, which is exciting to me, but it's about joining together and being part of something, doing it together. I don't know. I get these emails sometimes from elderly aunts um, that have these like warm, fuzzy, hallmark story endings to them. I don't know where, I don't know if there's websites where people pull these stories from. You know what I'm talking about? Where you get an email. It's like a spam type email, but it's from, usually from forwarded on from somebody you know who it'll start off by saying, man, get the box of tissues ready. And then you read, and then you get to the end and it says, send this to 10 more people or you're going to die a horrible death or something crazy <laughs> like that or whatever. And I remember there's one that I got often from people that would say, oh, you got to read this. And it's a story about the kid on the beach picking up starfish. You guys familiar with the starfish story? A lot of you have heard, you've gotten that email. I did not send it to you, just so you know. Um, but this story goes where this kid comes out on the beach early in the morning and recognizes there's thousands of starfish, little baby starfish all over the beach. And he recognizes that, oh my gosh, the sun's going to come up soon and the, the sun's going to dry up all these starfish. They're going to die on the beach. Or when the sun comes up, seagulls are going to be able to see these starfish and start picking off the starfish. They're going to die. And so frantically, this kid starts running up and down the beach, grabbing a starfish or two, running down to the edge of the ocean and throwing the starfish in, running and getting another one and throwing it. And his father, recognizing the futility of what his son is doing, comes out on the beach and somewhat cynically looks at his son as a son. Do you really think you're going to make a difference here? There's no way you're going to be able to save um, all those all those starfish. And the son says, I know that, Dad. And here's, you know, the, the, the warm, fuzzy part of the story. He says, but for this one, and he walks down, throws it into the ocean. He says, I've, I've changed everything. I've changed the world. And we're all like, ooh, good story. Warm, fuzzy, you know. And I get it. It's the Mother Teresa principle, right? If I did not pick up the one, I never would have picked up the 40,000. But every time I've heard that story, it bothers me. There's something about the story that irritates me, and I'll tell you what it is. It causes this question to rise up inside of me of like, why is there only one kid on that beach picking up starfish? What if that kid started going door to door, pounding on doors saying, please, the starfish are dying here on the beach. Come out and help me. And the beaches began to fill with people. What radical difference could have been made there on that beach? So really what I kind of want to leave you with this morning is a call to the beaches of injustice and oppression. A call to the harvest in all its mess and terror is to show up. And when we show up as a collective shout in action, anything can happen. I've gotten to see in the last few years of my life a young girl who just had a dream of turning 18 one day turn 18. And we celebrated her birthday like crazy town. I got to see a girl who dreamt of going to school one day, not only go to school and graduate from high school, but go on to college, getting a certificate that enables her now to work with other kids who've been through what she's been through. And I got to see a girl who one day held a pretend bouquet of flowers, hold a real bouquet of flowers on her wedding day, and she was married to a wonderful man who loves her and values her the way she should be loved and valued. Anything is possible when we show up and when we engage in the mess of the harvest field. You know, years ago, I was at a safe home and there was this girl who came running up to me giggling and 
laughing and sparkly-eyed like a little girl should be. And she's trying desperately to tell me something in a language that I don't understand or speak. She's tugging on my shirt, just jabbering away. And I'm like, desperate, I don't know what you're saying. And it was so frustrating. And she's just giggling and talking away. And so finally, I bring one of the caregivers over who could translate into English. And I said, could you tell me what she's trying to tell me? She's desperate to tell me something here. And, and I watch as the translator leans down and listens to this young girl. I see this grin come over the caregiver's face, and she looks up at me. She says, Rob, she wants to teach you to dance, all right? I don't dance, all right? It's not a pretty thing at all when I try. My kids say that, Dad, you flail. You don't dance, all right? But when the broken ask you to dance, you dance. And I will never forget that day as I spent the afternoon with this little girl, teaching me the moves to this traditional Cambodian dance, and I'm trying desperately to mimic these moves, attracting the attention of other kids in the safe home who started gathering around, laughing hysterically, pointing at the awkward white guy, trying to look graceful. <laughs> and I don't think I ever understood true celebration like I did that day. Later on, I asked this caregiver about this girl. I said, can you tell me her story? She just stole my heart away. And she goes, yeah, and she told me her story, and it was as horrific as you could possibly imagine. But she says, but Rob, this is the same girl who just a year ago would sit in that pile of dirt at the edge of the safe home property, trying desperately to disappear by covering herself with handful after handful of dirt. Do you believe in a God who brings beauty from ashes? I do, with everything in me, because I've seen him do it. And the crazy, beautiful, wild thing of it all is that he uses people like us to do it, if we're willing. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this group of people that are already leaning forward in their chairs saying, God, whatever, I'm in. Thank you for the stirring that you're doing in all of our hearts towards something that looks more like a kingdom and not a mess called the harvest field. Would you cause courage to rise up inside of us if we find ourselves on the bus, that we would be motivated to action. And Lord, we want to pray even as you taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, would you give us the courage to be bringers and carriers of that kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.